Good morning, everybody. Yay, yay. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, that was very lively. Praise the Lord. Okay. Um, all right. We're going to start in. Uh, we're going to start in Galatians chapter five. You ready? All right. Me too. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you for today, and thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather in your name and to do so freely in this city. And we're just so grateful, God, that we have this space, that we have um, the opportunity, that we have. Um, the privilege, Lord, of, of doing this, that we can make noise and shout and dance and uh, scream and flag and touch the sky and all sorts of other things. We're very grateful, Lord, for the freedom that we enjoy and for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to stand before you and um, to just uh, seek you and try to um, approach you again today. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and give us help, God, as we enter into your presence and to seek you again, that you would touch us again, that you would speak to us again, that you would change us again, that you would make us more like you again this morning. We love and honor you. And uh, Lord, I, I just, I really pray, God, that we, I'm not here just to um, hear something that tickles our ears or um, to see our friends, but I pray, Lord, that, um, that every week that we do this and every time, Lord, that it's not just um, a cycle, Lord, uh, an endless cycle of doing um, something hab habitual, something routine, but that you would do something in us yes. that really makes a difference in us, that you would do something in us, God, that's different um, from what you did yesterday and from what you've done before, but you would do something new and uh, that you would create new life in us, that you would give us new joy and new peace and a new knowledge of you and appreciation for you. And we're really grateful for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would make it increasingly more real in us Thank you uh, for you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church. We love and honor you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to jump around a little bit today. Um, have an interesting... Um, got to be careful here because i got to leave for Boston. So... Um, but uh, but um, we're going to jump around a little bit today. I want to talk about something that I haven't spent um, a lot of time on before, um, which uh, uh, is um, makes it fun. Okay, all right. Galatians chapter five. Are you ready? Starting with some verses that we um, most of us probably know quite well. Galatians five sixteen. But I say, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This uh, is a set of verses that you know very well. However, um, uh, there's something here that is really interesting about the way that Paul um, speaks with this. All right. The theme is very clear. Walk in the Spirit, don't walk in the flesh. Um, and so Paul lists uh, the various fruits of the Spirit. Um, we remember, of course, that Jesus told us that you should judge a tree by its fruit, Yeah. And so the fruits of the Spirit then, um, quite 
um, uh, succinctly, it's, it does, it's not a stretch to say that um, the, the, uh, the evidence of true Christianity is walking in these things. Um, in other words, um, now, uh, this is going to be um, a little bit uh, challenging um, because of uh, our um, uh, because of our doctrine, because of our orthodoxy, because of what we um, because of what we think we know and believe. Um, except they're not intention. It's not intention to say, on the one hand, that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and on the other hand, to say that if you don't bear the fruits of the Spirit, that you are not saved. Like these things are not intention, and yet we we want to make them intention. We want to say that if anybody says that there is any condition, that there is any sign, that there is any evidence of salvation other than just you know just saying that I'm a Christian, identifying, self-identifying as a Christian, that you know that this is uh, some sort of uh, uh, you know, uh, heresy, except it's, it's, it's very much what the Bible teaches. Um, so I don't, you know, it just is what it is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it is essential, actually, that as believers that we demonstrate these things, this is how people can judge the tree. Not by what we self-identify as, but whether or not we actually bear the, the fruit that, that is keeping with our repentance, that is keeping with our faith, that is keeping with the confession of our lips. Do you know? And of these, um, uh, love, I mean, who doesn't love love? Like, we're all like, love, we want some more love. You know, and joy, we're like, yeah, I want to be happy. Peace, patience, goodness, kindness. Kindness is, um, anyways, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And self-control. I, I remember um, uh, uh, the, the order that Paul gives it is, is, uh, is, is very nice. I, I remember, of course, um, when I was like six or seven years old in Sunday school that we had to memorize this list, as you did in Sunday school, surely, if you went to Sunday school. And um, you may uh, remember that um, uh, the first three are difficult to forget, love, joy, and peace. And then from there, it gets hazier and hazier, <laughs> you know, and there was something else and there was something else. And then it's kind of like, you know, First uh, Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. What, is, what, else, what else does it do? It does not envy, it does not boast. Like, I mean, you know, but it, it just gets hazier and hazier. And so um, naturally, we place our focus on the first ones and the last ones. Um, uh, the further down you get, the, the, less, um, uh, the less conscious we are that they exist. And so by the time you get to faithfulness, we forget that Christians are supposed to be faithful. Um, and, uh, and, and then gentleness is just sort of, you know, uh, honestly, it's a neglected little brother is what it is. Um, and then self-control. I mean, we barely remember that self-control is even in there. I mean, is that really part of the verse? It's not even, it's, it's like Pluto, you know. After a few years, you're just like, is that even a planet? Like, it's, let's just say it's not a planet. Let's just say we have eight planets, you know. It's like when, when I was growing up, Pluto was very much a planet. There are nine planets in the solar system. Now there are eight. And I feel like that's what happens with self-control. You know, it's like love, absolutely, it's a fruit of the spirit. Joy, fruit of the spirit. Peace, fruit of the spirit. And then by the time you get to self-control, it's just like, was that even, I mean, was that like, maybe it was just a textual error. Like, you know, it shouldn't even be in there. I don't think anybody thinks that, um, but that is sometimes the way that we treat self-control. Self-control, I think, is one of the most essential things that a Christian can do. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for it, um, but, uh, and, and let, me, let me try to explain a few. I think, um, let's be honest uh, here for a minute. All um, aspiring young people have great dreams. 
there are essentially two obstacles to God fulfilling your dreams and desires, and one of them is a lack of self-control. There's, there's really two things. Um, well, some would say it's a lack of righteousness, but, uh, uh, but it, so think about this for a minute. Okay, um, uh, if you've studied criminal law, um, you know that there are, uh, in, in criminal law, at least in violent crimes, there's, there's two types of violent crimes. There's what they call crimes of passion, and then there's what they call crimes of premeditation. Uh, of, and crimes of passion, under the law, is thought of as being, you're supposed to, it's supposed to be treated less severely. It's the exact same thing. If you murder someone in like a fit of rage, yeah, that's called a crime of passion, right? Like if you just got, like suddenly got super angry and murdered someone, uh, uh, that, that typically you would have less, uh, uh, um, it'd be treated less severely than a premeditated crime, which is you sit at home and you brood. You know, how am I going to kill this person? And then after a long time, you come up with a very complicated plan, and then you go and you execute that plan. Uh, and, um, but, but under um, the law of God, it's, it's, it's just murder. Like, it's, it, it, um, they're, they're both murder. Does, does that make any sense? Um, but for the Christian, so this is the part that's um, very interesting. Uh, a, a crime of passion is essentially a crime of the absence of self-control. Um, does that make any sense? It, it's essentially like what you did because you didn't have any self-control. Like you didn't think it was the right thing to do. You did it because you lacked the self-control to keep yourself from not doing it. Um, and uh, a crime premeditation is totally different. It's like you know this is wrong, but you're willing to do it anyway for all sorts of reasons that you sort of construct in your own head. Those are like very, very different things. Um, there are Christians that commit crimes of like, like premeditated crimes. Like, you know, I am going to figure out how I'm going to steal from the bank, like kind of crimes. Like, th like that, that kind of thing does happen for, for believers. But when we steal, it's much more common for us to steal, not in a premeditated sense that I'm going to steal, but like, you know, like it's just sitting there and nobody, and I really want it. <laughs> it kind of stealing. Um, it, mo uh, um, most Christians, I think, get, get into trouble, not with crimes of premeditation, um, because if you have any really sense, you don't premeditate on evil, like you don't meditate on evil things. I mean, well, uh, some people do, but, but you, like, it, I, I mean, that's very basic. Like, you, you can't do that. So where most young believers really get stuck, though, is um, that there's, there's desires on the inside um, that, that you have. And, um, and because of the lack of self-control, you allow those desires, those works of the flesh, as Paul said, to manifest, even though you're trying to hold it back. Like, you don't want to express lust, greed, selfishness, ignorance, anger. Like, we don't want to express these things, but they get expressed. And the reason is because of the absence of self-control. Um, it, it's not because we've been thinking for a long time, how do I, you know, express my greed? You, it, no, it, it's, it's because there's, there's, there's a lack of self-control that, that, that keeps us from that. And if you think about what Paul is saying here in, um, in this passage, his real, emphasis, his real emphasis here um, is, is actually on self-control. Look, starting in verse 16, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. What, what is it that keeps you from doing what you want to do? It's, that's, that's what self-control is. That's what self-control is. Like this entire passage, even though like self-control is the last one on the list, like this, this passage actually is motivated by Paul saying that like, in the absence of self-control, you walk in the flesh and you bear fruits in keeping with the flesh. In the last verse here, 
Um, do, 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 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with what? With its passions and its desires. Now, of course, of course, it's better to not be greedy. Of course, it's better to not have lust. Of course, it's better to not get angry. Of course, it's better to not be impatient. Oh, well, that, we all want that. Oh, okay, I'll speak for myself. Like, we, we, we out here, you know? Like, no, we want that. That's what we want. We want the absence of these things in totality. I don't want to be tempted by uh, uh, any of these various things. Do you, do you understand? And like, we, we, of course, we're going to grow in that. And, 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 but the thing is that like, it takes time, do, do you know? But, but even in the presence of, uh, of greed, anger, jealousy, like all these different things, there's actually a regulating mechanism that keeps you out of that sin. And that regulating mechanism is called self-control. And if you have self-control, even if you have, let's use lust as an example because it's so common. If you have self-control, even if you have lust, the lust doesn't manifest itself because there's a, a, a self-regulating mechanism in your spirit that holds the thing in check. You guys are not nearly as excited about this as I am, but okay, that's my job. All right. <laughs> there is something inside of you that actually keeps the thing in check. Okay, look, all complex systems have, have all sorts of various motivations and incentives and desires. Just like in your body, you have a desire to eat, you have a desire to sleep, you have a desire to drink, you have a desire to uh, uh, play, you have a desire to um, like watch entertainment. You have like, like there's, there's your body, that's not part of your body, but like there, your body has all sorts of desires, right? There's different systems in your body that control different things that, that do different things. How does your body not implode upon itself with like, you know, the heart wanting the blood to, and the stomach wanting it, like all the energy to be consumed, like digesting the food and pushing it out. And like, like you know, the, the, like how does your body like actually function? The way it functions, sorry, Kanisha. The way it functions uh, uh, is because your body has a lot of self-regulating mechanisms, which, uh, um, the, the most the, what, the, the word that you, you're probably aware of if you've studied it at all is called homeostasis. And the point of homeostasis is that even though there are many different things going on in your body, even though various cells want to do different things, even though various systems want to consume energy to do the things that they've been created to do, um, the, uh, there, there is something inside of you that is able to regulate all of those various desires to keep you like sane and to keep your cells from destroying each other and fighting each other and working against each other. It's able to self-regulate. Does that make any sense? It's able to self-regulate. And so even though your heart just wants to pump blood and spend all the time pumping blood, and even though your liver just wants to clean things out, and even though, you're, like, like, even though your lungs just want more air, and even though, like, it, it's, even though all those things are true, and, and they don't stop being true, there is a mechanism that allows everything to function together because it's, very, it's self-regulating. It's self it's not being regulated from the outside. Does that make any sense? It's not like, um, you know, my neighbor came and told me, hey, heart, slow down. Like, it, it, it's, not, it's, it does, it's not how it works. It's like the, the self-regulating mechanism is so strong. It's incredible that, like, it's able to, put, like, force your, like, your will is not part of the self-regulating mechanism, and yet your body can force you to do things. Like, your body can say, hey, you've been working out too much, slow down. My body tells me that all the time. Yeah, yeah. you've been doing too much work, like, you know, chill out, sit down for a second. 
you know, or you've been awake too long. Go to sleep now. I know you want to keep reading this or working on this or, 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 or whatever, but, you know, it's time to go to sleep. Like, you, your body is the ability to keep itself strong and stable and healthy because it's able to regulate the billions of different desires that exist inside here right now. Does that make any sense? And so as a Christian, like, do we want to not be greedy? 100%. Do we want to not be selfish? A hundred percent. Do we want to not be impatient? Yes. Do we want to like not be um, you know, whatever? Like, uh, of course. But, but even if you are those things, you can actually still live a healthy, sinless life if you have a proper self-regulating mechanism that works in your soul and in your spirit. Thank you. Three people. There's a concept that the Bible actually talks about that um, it, it, one of the, the things that's actually uh, uh, most detrimental is when, when sometimes the Bible talks about two different things and we confuse them and we make them the same day. Um, so uh, in the Bible, there's a concept called foolishness and foolishness is the absence of wisdom or sometimes the absence of understanding. It depends on um, the context, but typically it's the absence of either wisdom or understanding. And there's a different concept, there's a different word called rash. And because we don't necessarily think through these things very often, typically we, when we read Rash, which appears uh, 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 maybe a dozen or so times uh, in the word form, but then lots of other times in stories uh, that don't directly use the word, um, sometimes when we, when we hear the word Rash, we think of foolish, and we think that Rash is foolish. They're totally different things. Foolish is the absence of wisdom, but Rash is the absence of self-control. And similar outcomes happen uh, with those two things. That's why we clump them together, but they're actually entirely different mechanisms. They're actually, they're entirely different mechanisms. In Leviticus chapter five, which I know is not your favorite passage in the Bible, Leviticus chapter five deals with um, uh, guilt offerings. And there's various types of guilt offerings that it deal with, deals with. And one of the, the types of guilt offerings that it deals with is a rash vow. And a rash vow is not you committed to do something that, was wrong. Like you, like, it's not like you guys decided to go commit fraud or you burned down your neighbor's farm. It's not that you did something that was wrong. It's that you made a promise to do something. You made a promise you shouldn't have made to do something that the thing itself wasn't wrong, but the vow that you made was wrong. And there's guilt incurred for acting rashly, even though the thing you promised you isn't. Does that make any sense? The, the, it's, it's the rashness itself that is a sin that requires an offering to God for you to be cleansed of. When Christians do good things rashly, we commend them and say, what great passion you have. God considers it a sin. There's the man who, um, uh, or the woman uh, in, in the scripture who gives the, um, uh, the widow's might and Jesus says she's given a greater gift than anybody else because she gave all that she had to live on. And and so we think that the greater, the, the more you, giving it all is always the right answer. It's always what God wants you to do. But, but, but no, because, um, because there's, there's that sort of sacrificial giving that comes out of a premeditated uh, dependence upon God. And there's also um, that sort of same thing that just comes out of a spur of the moment emotional response. And we're like, yeah, you gave it all. But it, it, it's actually the type of rashness that the Bible does not condone. It, it, it's a type of God doesn't want you 
to behave even righteously out of rashness because, because he knows that your inability to self-regulate the emotions to go are also is, is the same lack of ability to, to self-regulate your emotions. Like it's the same absence of the ability to check um, uh, just fleshly desires and passions is what Paul says. Just because your passion is to go do something like that feels good or seems good does not mean that it's what God wants. He still expects self-control from us. Even when there's something stirring us inside to go do just, I want, just want to do something great. He, like, like he, there is still, that doesn't mean that you have to take a long time to think about it. It doesn't mean that like, you, you know, you can never be moved by the spirit. Of course you can be moved by the spirit, of course. But, but there's a different thing where there's, there's something that actually comes out of the flesh. It's not coming out of the spirit. It's actually coming out of the flesh. Uh, hard to describe. It's coming out of the flesh, but it's a good thing. And so we don't check it. We don't think about it. We don't bother. We're just like, yeah, God, I'm going to do that. Do you remember when you told God you're never going to listen to a secular song again? It's the sort of thing that, like, probably no pastor is going to be like, you shouldn't have said that. But the thing is, you may not have thought about it, and God may not have asked you to do it, and you may not have moved. It may have actually just been moved by the flesh to try to do something that appears righteous to you, and you can't do it because there's no grace upon it, because God's not with you in it, and because it's just the fruit of the flesh. But because it's a good seeming thing, like why should we listen to secular music? Because it's a good seeming thing, uh, it doesn't strike us as being actually the fruit of the absence of self-control, which is exactly what it is. Do you know? There's a proverb, proverb of the day. If I can find it, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know where it is. There's a proverb, um, Proverbs 20, verse 25. Um, think about this with me for a minute, because it, it, it may not strike you as a sort of thing that is uh, easy to grasp, but um, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Proverbs 20, 25 says, It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. It's a trap for people that want to be righteous. It is a trap to decide that something is good without thinking about it. And then after you've made a promise, then think about it. That's a trap that people who try to do good things fall into. That doesn't seem like the sort of trap that churches warn us about. <laughs> it's, but it's a trap. That, that's a trap. It's a trap to commit and not think. Because even if you fill, fulfill your vow, the rashness itself is wrong in God's eyes. When you are able to self-regulate your emotions and your desires and your will and your passions and all these different things, then you can see much more clearly the world around you. Um, at Eliza's school, which you just started, they teach chess, which is interesting for kindergartners. 
uh, except, and so um, the chess teacher who um, uh, seems like a really nice guy, uh, always gets questions about why are you teaching kindergartners chess? And so he has this whole presentation prepared for like, you know, why kindergartners learn chess. And the first thing that he said, which is actually incredible, it's, like, it's not that we want all your kids to become chess champions. It's because in playing games, there's actually certain things that you develop, certain um, social-emotional things that you develop. And the first thing that chess teaches you is impulse control. Impulse control, it, it's actually the number one rule. If you've, has anybody spent, does anybody play chess? Okay, just me then. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Noah, okay, all right, great, good. Um, the number one difference between bad chess players and good chess players, there's a, different, there's, there's, there's a big difference between good, bad chess players and good chess players, and it, it, it's, it's, in, it's impulse control. Um, and then there's a difference between good chess players and great chess players, which is um, uh, memorization, familiarization, and having premeditated on you know, every single arrangement on the board. Like, it, um, but but the, the, pr the first thing that you need to develop as a chess player is impulse control. And impulse control is this. I see a move that appears to be good, and I don't make it. And the reason I don't make it is because it's very likely, it's very unlikely that the first good move you see is the best move that's on the board. And it's incredibly difficult to find the best move on the board. It's uh, uh, great chess, like the best chess players in the world can sometimes, like in the average tournament, might get to like, you know, 60 some odd percent of what the chess computer will tell you is the optimal move. It's very difficult for like the, the top, 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 top chess players in the world to find the best move on the board. So what chance do you have of finding the best move on the board in the first 15 seconds? No chance. Like, I mean, I mean, not no, it happens, but it's very rare, do you know? And, and so one of the first things that you have to train is, is something that's called impulse control. And impulse control is I see something good and I don't do it. And that the, the mechanism of when does, when does it cross a threshold enough where I'm confident enough that this is what I want to do, that I actually do do it, there's, there's, that's a, um, it's a, it's a decision-making mechanism that actually requires patience and practice, lots of practice, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of iterations for you to train in you that, that, that mechanism that gets you over the hump to make an informed, wise decision after having thought through all the various options. Under time pressure, by the way. T chess games are played under time pressure. And, and, uh, and, and that's like the most, I would say, essential, that's the reason to learn chess, among other things. It's, it's because it teaches you to control your impulses, even impulses that you believe to be good. And, uh, and uh, it's important that actually that we Christians learn how to do this too. It, controlling your impulses allows you to see what is going on the rest of the board and to make the decision that ultimately will be better than the one that is immediately obvious in front of you right now, right this second. Um, that is not to say that you should not be moved to, it's not to say, for instance, you walk down the street and you see a homeless guy and the Holy Spirit moves you inside to help him, you should be like, you know, let me stop and think about this. It's not to suggest that you should not allow yourself to be moved by the Spirit. And it's to suggest that we need to learn to differentiate when we've been moved by the Spirit and when there's the, the us inside of us desires to do something and we don't have the ability to check that. Do you know? If you can't check yourself from doing bad things, you also can't check yourself from doing things that seem good, but they're not God. And, and this is very easy. If, if, if you can't turn YouTube off, even though you know you're supposed to, um, 
that's a lack of self-control. Like, let's not make any excuse about it. Like, that's lack of self-control. If you can't stop yourself from watching the next episode of Ahsoka, you know, right as it comes out, or whatever it is that people are watching these days. Ahsoka, by the way, is so slow. I need to move this thing along. Like, is Thrawn going to make it back to the galaxy? Is he not? Who knows? We'll find out on Tuesday, the season finale. Or Friday, for those of us that have self-control. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, 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 but I'm not. Like, like it, it, these are the things in life that, 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 that help us actually to, um, to move um, in a decisive way. Righteousness happens that way. It doesn't happen through impulse. It happens through um, intentional, um, uh, intentionally seeding ourselves in wisdom and in understanding. Again, it doesn't mean you need to take 66 days to think about every decision. What it means is that like, you're not being controlled by something that is this. Like, you're not being controlled by the passions and desires of the flesh. You're being controlled by a spirit that is bearing spiritual fruit. It's a different decision-making mechanism. I want to read a story with you, if we could, out of um, Judges chapter 11. I've got to get going here. Um, that introduction, I'm sorry, it took really long. Um, I, I, I want to get going here. Um, in J- Judges chapter 11, there's a few um, stories of the Old Testament which are tragic in their rashness. Where the main crime that is being committed is that the man has become rash. And again, rash means the absence of self-control. That's what... Jephthah is one of the judges that, that God raises up to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. And Jephthah does something that's very tragic. Um, I don't want to read the entire story just because of the lack of, lack of time, although I would encourage you actually to read um, the few chapters that surround this here uh, later in your own time for greater context. But in Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed to Mitzvah and Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against him, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mithvah, 20 cities as far as Abel Kiramin, and with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his house in Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him, with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he had said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. And she had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah of Gilead four days in the year. It's a very tragic story, and it, it, um, you should actually take some time to read this story on your own time and internalize what has happened. Jephthah, the Bible says, was, was if you read the first story here, uh, the first line here, it says, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Uh, God was with him. Hello? Not an evil man. 
God was with him, and God was with him specifically to do one thing, to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. That is what he was raised to do. That's what he's been asked to do. That's what he's doing, and he's going to accomplish it. But for whatever reason, maybe because he was overeager, maybe because he was overly ambitious, maybe because he thought that this was just like, yeah, I'm going to be a great man. I'm going to give God whatever. Like, like I, I don't know what, what in him prompted him to act this way. He makes a promise to God, which God did not ask him to make, which he did not need to make, because God was going to give him victory anyway, because that's why God had raised him up. But he makes his promise to God. And the promise that he makes to God is the first thing that comes out of my house, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering to you. Is it stupid? Yes. But when he made it, obviously, he wasn't thinking that his child would be what came out of his house. Uh, if you have a, a, a study Bible, it'll tell you that uh, in this day, most people had uh, their animals uh, in, in their front yard. And so if he was a, a, a man of some means, then he probably had goats and I don't know about chickens, but, you know, sheep and goats and, and cows and other animals. And he's thinking, oh, you know, whatever sheep, whatever cow, whatever dog, like, you know, I'll offer that to the Lord. And he doesn't think that it's his daughter, like, but he doesn't think that. But, but this is the problem with rashness. We cannot see around corners. God has not given us the capacity to see around corners. Does that? And so he has not asked us to make commitments to him that are rash. He's not asked us to make commitments to him that, that he has not asked for. He doesn't ask us to make promises of that sort. But when we do make a promise, he expects us to, um, uh, he expects the promise to be right. All right. And so his daughter comes out and, and he tears his clothes and he realizes what he's done. And, 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 uh, and, and, the, and then so his daughter's like, well, you know, this is such a tragic story. She, uh, you know, she feels condemned. To her. She's nothing, she's done nothing wrong. That she feels condemned to the fate that her father is, has led her down this road. And he's, they're, they're both wrong, by the way. Because as I just told you in Leviticus chapter 5, if you will read it, it says that if you make a rash vow to God, you can, you can offer to God, I think it's a lamb. I, I don't remember what it is. I think it's a young lamb and maybe something else. And then God will release you from the, it, it, the, the, the vow, the, the guilt for the rash vow has been satisfied. You don't need to fulfill a vow that is rash. Like, it is sin. You do need to get right with God about it, but you don't need to fulfill a vow with, that, that is rash. Does that make any sense? And uh, uh, Christians also, I think, honestly, don't really understand this. Oh, I promised them that I would. If it was wrong for you to make the promise, then put $1,000 in the offering and God will forgive you. If you're not sure he'll forgive you for $1,000, try 10000 If you don't feel that good at 10000 empty your bank account. I mean, I'm just kidding. But, but I'm, ser like, I'm serious about the principle, though. It is not God's desire to hold us to every rash vow that we make. It is his desire for us to humble ourselves and realize that we do these things out of the absence of self-control and then to get right with him and confess that the absence of self-control is a sin that leads us in bad directions in life. But his goal for us, I think, is not to, is that, oh, well, you said it, now you've got to do it. Entangle us in the web of our own words. He's able to deliver us from the rashness of, of the things that we have said. Hello? So, so let him do that. Don't go and, after realizing what a horrible thing you committed to doing, do it anyway, because you think that that's integrity. It's not integrity. It's stupidity. Like, it's, it's not the desire of God for us. Get that. It's not the desire of God for us. And so if you, 
committed to marry someone and they turn out to be crazy, give an offering, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. Well, you know, I already gave a commitment. Like, you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> like, move on. It, 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 save yourself. <laughs> save yourself. You know, it's not integrity. It, it was a sin, but now it does not help anyone for you to, you know, walk down that road. Like, it, it doesn't help anyone. Get out, you know, while you can. Does that make sense? All right. I've... Honestly, lots of different examples here. But I, I want, what I want you to see, though, um, one thing that I, I would really um, like you to see is that self-control is, is essential. And um, because we don't think about it very much, every time that Paul talks about self-control, which is about a dozen times in his letters, he talks about the, the various importance of self-control. You see, you, it, um, um, this is not condemning anybody in this room, but um, if I were to ask you to name other than Galatians 5, which I just read, we just read together, the places in the New Testament where we are instructed to have self-control, could you name one? You've read all of these verses. Every single person in this room has read all of these verses. The reason that these verses don't stick out to us is because we don't understand the importance of it. And so when we read it, we just read over it. But if you think about where it pops up, you realize this is very important. Do you know? Um, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, he's giving instructions about marriage. Um, and he says, um, do not deprive yourselves. And he's talking about um, marital intimacy. He says, do not deprive yourselves except um, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Be- uh, he, um, he's talking about for married people, fasting intimacy, although all fasting is really honestly the same. Um, he's talking about married people fasting intimacy. He says, don't do it for a long period of time. He says, if you're going to do it, do it for a short period of time. And the reason to do it is because you want to devote yourself to prayer and you want to just focus on the Lord. But he says, but then make sure you come back together again. And the reason is because if you don't do it, the devil will have the opportunity to tempt you. And the reason that he'll have the opportunity to tempt you is because you don't have self-control. If you did have self-control, then you could fast for a longer period of time. But because you don't have self-control, it's very important to recognize the limits of your self-control and don't go beyond that so that you don't give an opportunity for the devil to tempt you. What does that mean? That means that your ability to withstand temptation is limited by your self-control. Not by other things. It's limited by your self-control. It's the same with food fasting. What is the limit of your food fasting? It's not when you die. It's when your self-control, you reach the end of self-control. It's, it's when you begin to, like you're typically, you're, you're, you're like, you're uh, technically still on the fast, but now you're looking at food and you're watching cooking videos and you're ordering food and you're planning where you're going to eat for the next 72 years and you've you ordered provisions and you've ordered cookies and you've ordered, like your Amazon cart is full and your Instacart cart is full and your actual cart is full. Like that's when you know it's time to end the fast. At the end of the three-day fast, our Instacart cart is like from four different grocery stores and there's like 72 things and I have an $800 grocery bill, you know, and then it's like place the order and then after the fast ends, I'm like, yeah, we don't actually need that. Let's cancel this delivery. It's like when you got to the end of your self-control, when, when you cannot keep yourself from not thinking about food anymore, that's typically when you know it's time to end this fast because otherwise the devil is just going to tempt you. Does that make any sense? Later on in, in 1 Corinthians 7, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Who is he talking about? 
He's talking about single people who have found each other um, uh, uh, who would have otherwise been celibate. But, but he said, what is the reason to get married? Like, what is the controlling reason to get married if you've reached the end of your self-control? Then you should get married because why allow that? Do you see, like, self-control is the universal regulation, regulatory mechanism for whether or not you can withstand temptation. That in and of itself, if we understand it, means that we should want it because we are tempted often in life by all sorts of things that we want and all sorts of things that we see. And the more we have it, the less subject we are to these temptations, right? 1 Corinthians 9.25, uh, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The way to victory for an athlete is to, is to regulate the things that you eat, the way that you exercise, your sleep, your entertainment consumption, your, emo- like your psychological, emotional state. It's to regulate like all these various things. Um, athletes at the most elite level, um, NBA teams, NFL teams, as you probably know, they all, a lot of them have um, psychologists on staff to train the athletes how not to break in their mind. Like when they're like, you know, if you're down 20 points now, they're not just like, you know, give up and walk off the court and we can't win this. And, and like that ability um, to be regulated in your diet, in your stamina, in, in, to keep yourself running when you don't feel like running anymore. Like that's, this is how athletes win. And Paul's talking about serving God in the same way. Like as an, just like an athlete regulates himself in every way, controls himself in every way in order to win a trophy that perishes, that dies, he's asking us to be self-controlled so that we can walk out the calling of God um, uh, uh, and to win a trophy that doesn't die, that doesn't perish. Do you know? How many times have you been like in the middle of doing something that is like great and awesome and super useful for the kingdom and then your stomach growled? And then you're like, time for dinner. And it's not wrong to eat dinner. You understand, it's not wrong to eat dinner. What's wrong is to be driven by the desires and the passions of the flesh without any ability to regulate the flesh. That's the problem that they have there, right? First Timothy chapter two, commandments regarding women, asking women to have self-control, blah, 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 keep moving, don't wanna, I'm gonna get in trouble if I talk about that. Titus 1, verse 8, um, qualifications for being an elder, but um, elders should not be these things, but then be hospitable, be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Um, uh, it, it goes on and on. I, 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 don't, I don't want to like, sort of read every verse here, but like, no joke, like, there's no less than a dozen places where we are told to have self-control. And the reason is just because it's the doorway to everything else. It's the doorway to evil, and it's also the doorway to doing good in the right way. It's the doorway. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to end here uh, with one last example, and uh, this is one that I suspect um, will be a little bit uh, unfamiliar, uh, and that's okay, Um, because we're going to read it together. You're in a safe place safe place. I'm going to start here in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to, um, read a few verses together, if that's okay. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to read the story here in Acts 1, and then I'm going to read a little bit of Acts 2, and then just jump down in Acts, just to prepare you. All right. 
Acts 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, he asked them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, uh, restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. All right. You know this verse, obviously. But think about what Jesus is saying. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So he's saying, don't worry about when the kingdom has come. And then he's saying, this is what your job is. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When does this happen? That's right, at Pentecost, right? About a month and a half later. Pentecost. Great. Great. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is like one of those wonderful things. Like Jesus said it, and then it's like almost immediate, like fulfillment. It's not immediate, but you know, a month and a half is pretty immediate in God's timeline. It might as well be instantaneous, frankly. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is not the only time, of course, that the Bible records Jesus making uh, this statement or very similar statements. He does so in uh, the end of the Gospels as well. But essentially what Jesus told them is this, okay, um, go to Jerusalem, sit there and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you have power. Got no power? You have no business being a witness. Still a good rule today. You got no power, you can't really be a witness. But when you have power, then go to the ends of the earth because you're gonna be my, you're gonna be my witness everywhere. Spread out, go to the nations, go be my witness, right? Okay, that's the assignment. And when he had said these things, they were looking up, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you sitting here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come the same way that you saw him go into heaven. All right, so two angels come and said, um, <clears throat> Show's over, get going. <laughs> And then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were uh, staying. Peter, James, uh, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So far, so good, right? They're doing what Jesus asked them to do. They're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them were hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pephalia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene. The visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were amazed and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? But others mocking them, saying they are filled with a new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, blah, blah, blah. Wonderful sermon. No time for it. Keep going. Now when they were, uh, verse 37, now when they were, um, they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, repent of me, baptize every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this is a promise for you, your children, all who are off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself with um, many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. 
Yeah? All right. Uh, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any at any need. Day by day, the, uh, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, skip down to the end of uh, Acts chapter 7. I'm sorry, the, uh, at the, at the end of Acts chapter 7 is, is Stephen being stoned. Actually, go to the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Uh, sorry, the, sorry the, um, uh, the beginning of, of, of uh, Acts chapter six, uh, uh, chapter 8. Sorry. Um, uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down from the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they had heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who had them and many were paralyzed or lame were healed. There's great joy. There's, uh, so, uh, sorry. So there was much joy in that city. Now, let's go back um, to, uh, to uh, Acts chapter two. Um, and uh, I wanna show you something. When Jesus gave the commission as he was going into heaven, he said, go to Jerusalem, which is about a day's journey away, as you just read, and sit there and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power. When that happens, you're going to have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Yeah? The day comes. Immediately, there's evidence that the word of Jesus has been fulfilled because the, the coming of the Holy Spirit draws a crowd, which is unexpected. And Peter stands up. Now, Peter prior to this, mind you, was the guy that denied Jesus three times <laughs> because he was scared of being affiliated with him. And, and, and Peter stands up on this day in front of about 3,000 people, maybe more, and, and, and he stands up and he gives this, you, you call it a sermon, um, but it's really an accusation is what it is. He stands up and in many words accuses them of killing the Messiah, <laughs> um, which is not the most... A uh, uh, seeker-friendly message that you could possibly give if you, you know, get my gist. And uh, but that's exactly what Peter does. I mean, he doesn't. He's not winsome. He's not charismatic. He's not like come one, come all. Like he's. He, I mean, it's an elaborate uh, accusation, is what it is. And at the end of it, the Bible says that they were cut to their hearts by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And everybody who was cut to their heart was baptized, gave their hearts to Jesus, and three thousand were added that day. Listen y'all. This is not the way that any of us would run a crusade, right? I mean, if we were to run a crusade, we would not by start stand up and be like, you all idolaters. It is because of you that, I mean, you know, we like, that's not the most winsome way to do it, but it's what Peter does. <laughs> and, and, but the power wins the day. The power of the Holy Spirit wins the day. The conviction falls. 3,000 come, come upon them. Does it make any sense? Okay. And so 3,000 people, the church went from being 120 to 3,120. Just, oh, that didn't, just like that. What's interesting is the response. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, which is not what Jesus asked them to do.
It's not what Jesus asked him to do. What he asked him to do was to be his witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. When, when the power came and the witness began to work, they stuck together. Why? Because God was doing such a good thing because there were so many people to save, because there were so many people to reach, because God was adding souls to them every single day in Jerusalem. Why go anywhere else? The city hasn't been reached. We haven't done, job's not done. Why go anywhere else? And it took roughly five years of elapses, roughly five years elapses, uh, maybe eight, don't really know for sure, between Acts chapter two and Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is stoned. As a response to Stephen being stoned, Saul is invigorated to persecute the church. And because Saul persecutes the church, they can't be together anymore. And so they're driven out of Jerusalem to all the various cities. Philip goes down to Samaria, which you'll remember is one of the places Jesus told them to go. And ooh la la, the power of the Holy Spirit follows Philip to Samaria. No shock. That's what Jesus told them to do five years earlier. Falls and revival breaks out instantaneously in Samaria. Um, it's very difficult to read the first few chapters of the book of Acts and say they failed because they didn't. You understand, but they, they didn't. Uh, they added the numbers day by day. They, the, the, there were so many signs and wonders being done in the city by the apostles. They flipped the city upside down. God blessed them, added to them, gave them fruit every single day. And yet they did not accomplish the commandment of the Lord, and it took God allowing persecution into the church to push the church out to do what he asked them to do in the first place. Why? It's the absence of self-control. There is a manifestation of self-control that when something good is happening, I can't break away from it because I'm, I'm frozen by the good thing that's happening. I gotta keep doing it. And... Um, I, you understand, like, Peter, James, John, these guys, they're my heroes, right? Like, this is not, like, hello. Like, the, the, uh, if it could happen to them, it could happen to any of us. But I can't deny the fact, though, that they should have left a long time ago. They, they, they should have. The day Pentecost came, and eventually they scatter and go to the ends of the earth. Like, it happens eventually. It's it, it just that the moment that they saw the, the, it being fulfilled in Peter getting up and 3,000 people getting saved, what they should have done next is said, the word of the Lord has been fulfilled. He said Jerusalem, he said Judea, he said Samaria, he said the ends of the earth. Let's get going, guys. You know, Peter, you take Jerusalem. You're doing a good thing here. People are adding, build a community here. We're gonna go to these different places and begin to build the kingdom in other places. And that's not what they did. And why is it not what they did? Because what God was doing in Jerusalem was so interesting. It was so interesting. It was so incredible. It was so fruitful. It was so holy. You couldn't deny the Holy Spirit was working there. And yet, the moment that Philip gets, like, you know, packs his bags, they've got to get out of Jerusalem because there's persecution in Jerusalem. We can't be together anymore. And he packs his bags and goes to Samaria. Boom! The same thing that happens in Jerusalem happens in Samaria. But it could have happened five years earlier if people had obeyed the word of the Lord instead of being drawn by the things, the good things that they were seeing happening in front of their eyes. This is next level, y'all. If we ever have 
a situation in New York like they had in Jerusalem, like, you know, in, in 34 AD or whatever this is, we're not going to be like, well, you know what, like, we're going to be like, hallelujah, praise God. Like, this is next level. This is not the sort of thing, this is not our immediate problem. Our immediate problem is that there's so much fruit here. How do we tear ourselves away? Like, this is, this is not eminent, this is not an eminent threat to our Christianity, I would have to say. It, it, it seems like, um, uh, uh, but I, I want to just, but I want to show you, um, really, I want you to, to meditate on this. Like being controlled by the things that you see and the things that you feel and the things that feel good to us can happen at any time in any circumstance, whether good or bad. It's not a sin to love what God is doing in Jerusalem, but it is disobedient to ignore the word of the Lord simply because the Holy Spirit is already moving in some other way. Do you know? And because they didn't, God allowed persecution. I, I think God allowed persecution into the church to force the church out of the city. It's like smoking the, um, I don't want to say mouse, but, but, but seriously, it's like smoking the mouse out of his hole because you're trying to get him out. And um, it's the will of God for the gospel to hit the nations in that generation. It was not the will of God for the light of the gospel to be trapped in Jerusalem because nobody felt like going anywhere else because this is heaven on earth. That was not the will of God. And because they were not accomplishing the will of God, God had to smoke them out by allowing persecution to hit the church. Do you think God wanted the church to be persecuted? I don't really think so. I think God allowed the church to be persecuted so that the gospel would go further the way that he had intended all along. If only they had obeyed, maybe the persecution would have never come. Do you know? There are many things that happen in life that we think God is punishing us. But what God is really doing is he's imposing a regulatory mechanism on us that we should have had in ourselves. Um, when you have young kids, you, you see this because kids, they don't have any regulatory mechanism. They're not supposed to. Um, they, they grow that in time. That's why you have parents, do you know, is because you don't have. So Micaiah loves mangoes. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? And so a while ago, we got a box of mangoes, and Makai was getting one every day, and, and, and so Esther or somebody would cut a mango for him, and he would just love, I mean, just stop from my right, wrong, wrong. And then he began to anticipate how wonderful mangoes were. And so one day, I, um, there was a few mangoes left, and so I grabbed one, I was gonna cut it up for him, and, and, and he's very like, like whenever there's something good, I can't open the snack drawer without, I mean, he could be in the other room, and he'd like run out and be like, <laughs> Do you know, I'm, the other day, uh, yesterday, I, I, I had a bottle of lemonade from dinner, and, and I opened my bottle. I mean, he was out somewhere. I it got picked up the bottle. I had been sitting there for a while. I picked up the bottle, opened it. No sooner than had the pop popped, it comes running in. Uh, 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 like, I mean, he's very, so, so I'm, I'm getting this mango, you know, and, uh, and uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to open it, and I'm going to cut it up for him. And he looks at the mango. He knows what it is. He knows how juicy, how delicious it is. Um, and, 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 and so he's like, uh, uh, I, I, like, Makai, I, I'm going to cut it up for you. And he's like, uh, I'm, I'm, so, so I'm like, Makai, just wait. And so I'm, I'm walking to the kitchen to get my thing. And, and he, like, runs after me. He grabs my hand. He grabs the mango, and he drags it down. And I'm like, Makai, no. <laughs> you know, and so he drags it down. He takes the mango. I'm like, okay. If you insist, take the mango. <laughs> and then he looks at the mango. He looks at me. He's like, wait, this doesn't taste the way it's supposed to taste. And 
and, and so he's got a little bit of the peel. I think it's a mango. It, it may have been something else, but I, I'm pretty sure it was a mango. So he looks at the peel, and, and, and he looks at me, and, and then he looks at the, and he's like, this doesn't taste how it's supposed to taste. And I'm like, that doesn't taste good, does it? And he's like, ugh. And he spits it out. And I'm like, would you like me to cut it for you? And he's like, huh? And he's like, give me a bath of mango. And I'm like, you go sit in your chair and wait patiently while I cut this for you. And there, there's something of that. Um, I tell that story because it reminds me of me, frankly, and God. There is no good thing that God has that he withholds from his children. God doesn't have a basket of mangoes that he's just like, you know, eating in his own room by himself because he doesn't want to share it with you. Uh, you wouldn't do that with your kids. Your parents probably didn't do that to you. God doesn't do that. And so whenever God shows you something that is good, it is his good pleasure to give it to you. If he would not withhold his own son, what would he withhold from you? Like, what is there that God has that he would not share with you if he did not spare Jesus? What, what, what is it that he wouldn't share with you? Do you know what I mean? But when you don't have uh, a regulatory mechanism inside of you, what happens is that you don't, there are things that God can't give you, and you, you're like, God, give me the mango. There's a reason he doesn't give it, because you don't, you, you can't, it, it's only going to be bitter. Like, you're not going to like it. It's not, it's not, do you understand? Like, you have to have some understanding here to realize, no, I got to peel, and I got to cut, and I'm not going to eat the outside. Like, you need a little bit of, you got to walk down the road a little bit so that this thing can be a blessing instead of a bitter, ugh. Like, it can be a blessing to you. And this is the primary challenge. You see, um, I was wondering, why is it that the Bible records so many different varieties of miracles and wonderful things and wisdom and parables and just wonderful things that Jesus did? Is it to tease us? Is it so that we can put them on a pedestal and just be like, hallelujah? I mean, yes, <laughs> but like, is it, is it just so? No, it's because when, when, when God shows you something, it's because he wants you to share in it. Um, there's sometimes where uh, uh, Micaiah is more this age than Elisa now, because Elisa, we can actually have a real dialogue about this, but Micaiah, he doesn't understand, you know, so sometimes there'll be something, it'll look nasty, but it's really delicious, and he doesn't know it's delicious, and I'll be like, Micaiah, mmm, and then he'll be like, oh, okay, I'll try it. Like yesterday, he tried Chick-fil-A lemonade for the very first time. He was very suspicious of it. Looking at it, he was like, where is this pulp in here? You know, what is this funny color? He never had it before, and so he was very suspicious of it, and I put it to his left, and he, Smelled it and didn't smell that good. And so he like, you know, sipped it. And then he got some and was like, oh! and then he opened it and was like, gulp, gulp, gulp. There's a reason that, that Jesus does all these different things. It's to show us when we don't know that something good is good, he demonstrates it to show us the goodness of the things that he has in store for us. And when he shows us the goodness of the things that he has in store for us, his primary purpose is not then to keep it for himself isn't to be like, I'm the raise the dead, y'all watch. Do you know? That's not the reason. The reason is because he desires to share it with you and with me. There's nothing that Jesus does in the Bible that where his intention is to keep it for himself. Just like you would never eat a watermelon in front of your kids and just be like, watch me. Like, there's, that doesn't exist in God. And so if there is anything in God that he has that he has not yet shared with you, it's only because we can't receive it. And there are fundamentally two reasons we can't receive it. 
not because of sin, actually, I think. I, I used to say it was because of sin, but I don't think so because God uses sinners all the time. But there's two things that I can think of. One is wisdom, which is that you get and you just know how to use it. Like, like you know, you could give somebody a car, but they don't know how to use it. So it's just like, okay, just sit there and play with it. It's not, so there, God doesn't necessarily give you things that are very valuable that you don't know how to use, number one. Well, that's not really, the, the primary thing I think that really, really happens is that you don't know how to control it. And so you, or you don't have the self-control in you that would allow you to make good use of it. And so you can't be allowed to access it. It's the same reason why Micaiah can't be allowed to use a knife. It's not because I'm trying to withhold the knife from him. It's just because in the absence of, of, of physical uh, uh, motor skills and, and understanding, the knife becomes a danger to him rather than a tool. Do you know? Um, it's the same way. Uh, it is the desire of the Lord to send you out as witnesses full of power, not, with, not as powerless orphans out in the world by yourself. But there's a real problem when we don't have enough self-control to steward and to manage the gifts that God would like to give us. John chapter four is uh, the classic story of evangelism, my favorite story of evangelism, in the, it's really the only one. It's, it's the story where Jesus, um, it, John chapter four is the story of the woman by the well. And it's a story where Jesus takes a woman who is a total skeptic through to the point where she's totally convinced that he's the son of God. I mean, and it's one conversation. And, uh, and it starts with, uh, him asking her for help, and then they have a theological discussion, and then he gives her what uh, people call a word of knowledge, um, and, and that changes everything. It's a very interesting story because um, Jesus knew all along that she's an idolater, uh, and, and that she's you know, sleeping with all these different men, and she's not married. Like, he knows this all along, does he not? Yes, no, yes, no, agree, you don't, okay. He knew this all along. And yet, he, 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 he doesn't just... See the woman be like, you, sinner, come over here, let me save you. <laughs> it's, it's not, no, he's, you know, will you give me a cup of water and, and the whole dialogue. And they have a dialogue about worship and a dialogue about um, the state of the, of, of the Samaritans and how they've been rejected by the Jews and the separation, all these different things, and Jacob and the well and the, true, the state of true worship. And then at the end of it, he doesn't even convict her of her, so he doesn't, with the sin, and says, why don't you bring your husband? I mean, it, 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 it's leading her into the, the, the point where the power and the knowledge of God is about to be real. But the way that he does it is, it, it's, it's a tool in his hand. It doesn't control him, he controls it. The knowledge does not control him, he controls it. Do you know? And he controls it, and he uses it in such a way so as not to embarrass her, so as not to diminish her, so not to demean her, not to make her feel inferior, not to create distance between his holiness and her sin, but he uses it in such a way that after the conversation, after the explanation, after the relationship is built, it's used to draw her in at the right moment in the right way. And that nuance, that, 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 that uh, uh, control is what most of us lack in regards to spiritual gifts. If you were able to walk to Columbia's campus tomorrow and you knew everything about everyone, and you could walk up to them and be like, you're from Turkey, you have three sisters. You have like, <laughs> like it, it, uh, it's impressive, um, but it doesn't necessarily win souls. It, it doesn't necessarily bear the kingdom fruit that God desires. It doesn't necessarily bring him glory as much as it brings us fame. As a result, I think the operation of the gifts of God are constrained not by his 
unwillingness to share, but by our inability to control the things that he would give to us and share with us. The reason I say this is because if you were interested in spiritual gifts, there's like essentially, you know, a little bit of the church that walks in, in the U.S., and they put YouTube videos up in that. Like, the way that people use prophecy, word of knowledge, healing, I mean, it is appalling to me. The show, the ostentatiousness, the, the, the man-glorifying, like, the pride of uh, the, how things are used. Like, genuine words of knowledge are used to it, humiliate people, to embarrass them, to trap them on camera, just so that they're crying, so I can raise money for my ministry. It's embarrassing is what it is. And you wonder why not more power is available to the church. If we can manage this, if we can grow in this capacity, um, God, his power, his blessing, his revelation, his wisdom, the knowledge of the future, boom! Everything, that every single miracle, every single power, every single gift and skill demonstrated in the Bible will be available to you if you can control it. Every one of them. If you can use this as a tool, rather than allowing it to control you because you desire to be famous, because you desire to be rich, because you desire to be seen, because you desire a name for yourself. If, if you can control those things, every single thing in the Bible, to the, to the T, you can walk on water. You, like, you could, like, every single one of it will be available to you. Every single one. Without hesitation. It is his good pleasure to share all those things with us. It is our mandate to rise to the occasion to be able to steward it as mature sons of God. The answer, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, is not, I'm not going to be lustful, I'm not going to be greedy, I'm not going to be, yes, don't be those things, but that will maybe take a little bit of time. But the answer is to rise in your ability to control yourself so that you can have all those things. How do you do it? Simple things. I don't feel like praying, but I'm going to pray anyway. I want a boba, but I'm not going to get one. I don't want to fast, but I will fast. I don't want to attend this prayer meeting, but I will. Not out of discipline. Oh, the discipline is good. But, but, but out of just the ability to manage yourself. Do you know? In the same way that your heart does not beat so fast that you explode because there's a regulatory mechanism, in the same way, your appetites, your desires, what you look at, the way that you spend your time, the things that you say, the things that you don't say, all those things. And these things actually create an environment where heaven can pour into your life and all the good gifts that God has can come flowing into you freely. It's my desire for myself. It's very much my desire for you that, that you would be a fortress, you know, like where God can store the riches of heaven in you and, and you can bring out of it whatever treasure you need whenever you need it. And whatever lack of access we have to his world, uh, it's not because he's unwilling. It's not because he's slow. Uh, I think it's because we just can't handle it. And, um, and so rather than accusing God, rather than thinking God is slow or you know, whatever, um, there are things that, that we can act, choices that we can make on our own that, um, that get us there. Okay, uh, why don't we stand? Ooh. <sighs> Better not be traffic. My goodness, you guys are patient. I'm trying to cut down on my, my, my time here. It's just not working. You see, it's, I, I need some more help. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us and all that you're leading us into. And I pray, Lord, uh, that you would help us even more. Be faithful to you. Walk out your promises to know you and to love you and treasure you and be faithful to what you've given to us to be and to do. We love you and honor you and cherish you 
and pray that you would increase in our lives. And God, to the extent that any of this is of you, I really do ask you, God, that you would allow it to increase in us. Give us a measure of, of, of wisdom and understanding unto maturity. Give us the ability to control ourselves and to do what is right over and over again. Um, not as a robot, but as an intentional choice to live this way before your eyes. Thank you for you, for how you love us. And please, allow your kingdom to expand in us and through us and all around us. For every person in this church, I don't just pray, Lord, through this for, um, for myself, even though I need it, uh, probably more than anybody. But I pray for everybody who wants it, God, that we would increase, increase, increase in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. All right, take it away, guys.